This is Laree Daniel Favors, and welcome to The Hub. is not simply relegated to whether or not we have safe air to breathe, which today we definitely do not. It's not simply about whether or not we can vote. It's not about whether or not we have access to housing and, and health care. It's about all of those things, but it's also for us about how we show up physically in our bodies and the politics of race and how those politics typically create environments that make it very hostile for black people to simply live in the bodies that we are living in, particularly when it comes to our aesthetic. Joining me right now are three pioneers in the natural hair beauty industry and i'm going to literally we're going to have to tweet out their bios because i could be i could spend the next 20 minutes reading from their bios i'm going to give you a brief snippet into who these amazing uh, goddesses are diane c bailey an award-winning master stylist and pioneer in the natural hair industry with more than 40 years of experience in providing chemical free services for textured hair in 87 as a salon entrepreneur she opened one of the first comprehensive natural hair and braiding salons in new york state she's written two textbooks including uh, the first ever textbook natural hair care and braiding by Milady publishing she was the first black woman to be appointed to the new york state appearance enhancement advisory committee appointed by the secretary of state she is absolutely phenomenal she's also the founder and ceo of emerge natural beauty industry alliance trade association i'm going to say that again she is the founder and ceo of the emerge natural beauty industry alliance trade association emphasis on the trade association we have to professionalize our industries and she is joined by none other than another brilliant goddess of the natural hair community and the textured hair cosmetology space. Diane DaCosta, a master pioneer texture expert, celebrity stylist, and guru in curly textured hair. She's the founder and CEO of Simply Beautiful, a clean lifestyle brand, the curly textured bar, a curly consult bar, textured hair care salon, and the Simply CBD beauty and wellness boutique. She's also the author of Textured Tresses, the ultimate guide to maintaining and styling natural hair. She too has consulted educated and inspired consumers and professionals in the multi-textured hair industry and movement and more than 35 years of the beauty industry. She has consulted with all of the brands because she is that woman. And joining them finally, Erin H. Maben, another one of the goddesses of the panel today, an accomplished licensed cosmetologist, educator, salon owner, and a member of the New York State Appearance Enhancement Advisory Committee and as the executive VP of educational development for the Natural Hairstyle and Braid Coalition, one of my favorite groups to be a part of. Uh, she is dedicated to transforming the field of texture education. Her passion for innovation and excellence allows her to provide uh, the organization's, or to fulfill rather, the organization's educational mission by devising and executing cutting edge strategies. I'm so grateful to have the three of you here. And I literally could have read each of your bios for another two and a half paragraphs. I will just pause by saying thank you for joining us today, ladies. Thank you, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Let's start first with you, Diane Bailey. I'm going to use first and last names. We've got two Dianes here. I would like if you could to give us some insight into how your 40 years of expertise led you to the realization that people who are experts in natural hair care, people who are experts in the curly textured hair industry, don't just need to be wonderful stylists, don't just need to be wonderful cosmetologists. They're also an industry that needs to be 
organized in some way. What was it about your experience that led you to create the Emerge Natural Beauty Industry Alliance Trade Association? And I keep harping on the trade association because we often don't see that level of organization within Black industries currently. Talk with us about why you made that decision. So many reasons. One of the main reasons is because we need to create a foundation in our community of work ethics, principles that deal with our African aesthetics. Um, I, I, I didn't have that. I met some of the most mm -hmm. wonderful people in the industry. I met Tulani Kennard. I, yes. I, yes, I met Esmeralda Simmons. And I met yes. women who understood that it's not enough just for you to have this wonderful career, that you need to take the community with you in order for it to flourish, in order for our community to flourish. And so those seeds were dropped in me very, very early, and I just could not give it up. And so um, a, 20 years later, I decided to do Emerge because no one was doing it. No one was talking about the, the, the industry as a trade, as a service, mm -hmm. and as an economic empowerment for our community. Mm -hmm. And so um, having that platform allowed me to really engage other stylists and um, and communicate on a whole new level beyond styling and hair care is really about the community and the economic empowerment. Mm. And that's important because a lot of women, men, and, and regardless of gender, gender non-conforming people in our community have seen the hair community as a, an economic engine. And I'm not just talking about, you know, a little side hustle. I'm talking about a full-on engine. And I, I do recall a lot of side hustles when I was in college. Shout out to my, right. my dear friend from college, Erin Nissa McFadden, who was the resident dorm hair. And that's when I, when I saw how well she was respected and received in the community on Penn State's campus. And when I saw how lucrative it was. I thought to myself, well, I'm in the wrong field. But she was able to literally help support herself through college. And we have seen a, a variety of examples of Black women, Black men, uh, members of our community who have been able to use the, the cosmetics industry and our hair care as a way of providing not just economic sustainability, but political organizing. We've had a number of folks on who've talked about the fact that hair salons were a place that because they were just women's spaces and barbershops, because they were just where the brothers gather, they flew under the radar in terms of political organizing, and that has allowed them throughout our history to be real vibrant parts of not just our beauty, but also of the way we think about how to engage in our society. Uh, Diane DaCosta, I, I want to turn now to you, and, and you are one of the folks who have been really uh, advocating for not just inclusion, right? Not just diversifying the hair industry, but real inclusion and equitable access to resources. And I've heard you speak before about some of your concerns related to the fact that in, in states like New York, across the country, women who want to go into doing hair care for our community are forced to take an exorbitant number of courses, a lot of requirements they have to engage in that have nothing to do with our hair care and that are really more geared towards treating hair in white communities. Talk with us about some of the, the challenges that black people who want to enter this industry face when it comes to being licensed and, and having to master subjects that are completely irrelevant for their particular areas of expertise. Uh, thank you, Laurie. So basically, um, anyone who wanted to learn anything about natural hair or just become licensed before 1993 had to become a cosmetologist, where they learned everything except natural hair and texture. 
So they were forced to do a whole curriculum that would take maybe over a year in some states and never utilize um, the, the practice because they did not learn anything about natural hair textures, grading, texture identity. And so they have wasted up to $20,000 to become licensed. And that was always a concern to everyone in the community. But because we, that is the way we had to get licensed, it was in our favor because now the science, we had the science, not only the art, which is already given, we had the science now and that catapulted mm -hmm. us to a level where we were equal regardless with the cosmetology license. However, in 1993 and before then, Diane Bailey and some other pioneers championed the natural hairstyling license. And that was the beginning of the movement of the natural hair movement and the tech, well, part of the natural hair movement, because we know it started in the 60s and beyond. Mm, right. you know, like, oh, I say from the beginning of time with Jesus Christ. So if we really want to go back and then the movement up to the 90s and with the natural hair license, that is what really brought everything to fruition because there was a need for it. The community mm -hmm. was already wearing their hair in their powerful glory with their crown, very proud with locks dominating in the 90s, not just now, locks, braids, twists. It was dominating the economics in that time was fruitful. I mean, I owned a salon, Diane Bailey owned a salon, and let me tell you, I was making half a million dollars in my salon. So mm. the economics of treating natural hair came before anything else. And so wow. it was very important to have a new license geared mm. toward texture education, natural hair styling, inclusive of braids and locks. What I'm hearing and what I so appreciate about the way you framed this, Diane DaCosta, is that it's not just enough to have the, the talent of being a phenomenal hair stylist. It's not just enough to have that God-given artistic calling, that ancestral calling. And Jesus, he was only 2,000 years ago. We go back before even that. So when we talk about beginning of time, it's not just enough to have that. In this society, you also have to have a professionalization. There also has to be a, 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 the education that's provided. And so it's not just, oh, I can braid good hair. I've been braiding good hair ever since. Or I can braid hair well. Let me not say that because when I say good hair, we all know what that means. It's a loaded term. But I can braid hair well. I can do hair well. I've been doing hair since I was at my mom knee that's beautiful but there are also protocols that need to be learned sanitization hygiene there are things that have to happen that you might not intuitively know without going through a process but spending twenty thousand dollars to get a cosmetology license the bulk of which uh, is not really related to your work I can see why there was a lot of frustration around that. And we're seeing now throughout the country, a lot of folks within the African textured hair community uh, who are saying, wait a minute, we've got licensing requirements that are going to, I got to go into debt to get a license that's going to have, you know, 75% of information I'm never going to actually need just so I can be on par with other folks in the community who are doing this work for other communities. Uh, so Aaron, Aaron, I want to turn now to you because you, you do a lot of work with 
uh, education and helping the this new uh, I won't say new round of, of hairstylists and braiders. It's it's a constant thing, so it's not like we're in with the new and not with the old. But this next generation of folks who are coming up in the industry, you and the work of the organization, the Natural Hairstyle and Braid Coalition, coalition which all of you are a part of, have been doing a lot of work to educate here locally and across the country about the distinctions between these sorts of licensing regimes and and some of the benefits that come from them, and also some of the harms and the and the frustrations that a lot of people experience. Talk with us a bit about what you all have uncovered as your part of your work with the Natural Hairstyle and Braid Coalition. Well, thank you, Laree. Part of what we've uncovered really around licensing is there's misconceptions, okay? There's misconception that licensure is um, state and federal, you know, um, a, a state and federal necessity. Now, really, it's us Black women that were on the forefront to get licensing for natural hair to keep us safe because it was not safe. Our industry without standards and regulations and policies and procedures and hygiene and health, right? It's not safe because it spreads bacteria and disease. And then we had COVID, right? So that was a whole nother thing. <laughs> and you saw a lot of people that were still doing hair during COVID. Actually, some of them died, right? Some of the hairstylists died because of unsanitary and unsafe procedures. So it's really important that we advocate for licensure because it allows a standard to be in place by law, right? And if we do not create the laws for ourselves, then someone else will. And I think that's the misconception. So it's, it sounds as though you're speaking to the this controversy that exists where there's an absence of a thing, right? You know, Diane Bailey, you mentioned that, you know, in the 90s and Diane DaCosta, you said prior to 1993, there were no, there was no licensing structure for women who are, or men or people who wanted to engage in this industry for African textured hair. So there was, there was no requirements. There was no way to even, as I understand it, you couldn't even open a natural hair salon. You could do hair in your basement, in your kitchen, but you could not professionalize and come out from outside of your house if you want it. If you want to stay in the basement, in the kitchen, that's that's on you. That, that's good for you too. I'm going to get my mama's, my hair done in my mama's house on Monday. So I get it. I understand it. But this idea that if I wanted to come, to come out of my kitchen and do hair in a professional space, if I wanted a salon, if I wanted to bring in other stylists, if I wanted to create uh, my foothold in this industry, you would have to have a license for that. And prior to 1993, that did not exist in states like New York. So you, you literally couldn't do it. And as I understand it, I'm going to take a, a point of privilege, the Center for Law and Social Justice, I believe, also helped with securing said licensure. And I just had to drop that in there because y'all also mentioned Esmeralda Simmons, my predecessor. So it would be, it would be, the ancestors would not be pleased if we did not <laughs> raise that. But Diane, can you talk with us just a little bit about why it is important that people know that this fight for being licensed isn't something that the state imposed on Black people. This is something that Black professionals in this community and in this industry were seeking so that they would be able to come out of the kitchens, come out of the basements, and actually professionalize by opening up storefronts, brick and mortars, where people could come in, take services, provide services, take in resources, things of that nature. Why is that so important to remember in this day and age? Well, it's all about economics, of course. I mean, we were empowered. I mean, Diane DeCosta says she made a half a you know half a million dollars. I made three quarters of a million dollars. It is about economics. It is about taking a cottage industry, which we now know is more than eight point seven billion dollars, um, an industry that Ooh. we 
deserve to have a portion of that. You cannot have it as long as you're under the, on your stoop braiding hair. You cannot have it if you don't understand and recognize scalp disorders and diseases, particularly in our community where 50% of Black women have some type of alopecia, hair loss, or some type of hair stress. So mm. it is vital, it is imperative that education be a part of that. And of course, with the new trends of texture and, uh, and, and um, diversity, hair diversity, hair inclusion and hair texture is ultimately where we wanna go. Everyone is embracing their own hair type from wherever it, whether it's straight or kinky curly, this range of acceptance has, you know, um, outgrown this small contained industry. It is is busting out of the seams, mm -hmm. and we are here. We are here, in our organization, our coalition, to provide the professional and the consumer, the community, all that it needs to protect itself for safety and to engage in the uh, beauty wellness. Um, platform around natural hair. Mm, I appreciate that as, as a beneficiary of that professionalization. I appreciate it very much. My, my locks stay luscious because of the work that y'all helped to do. Uh, Diane DaCosta, we have just a minute left. And so, and I want to let the audience know you ladies and in parts of your group and, and folks like yourselves are going to be coming back. We're going to be really, we're tiptoeing into a new segment that I'm calling Black Looks. And we're really going to be thinking more critically about the politics around the Black aesthetic. Uh, so, so my final question, uh, Diane DaCosta, for you, talk with with us just briefly about the impact that legislation like the Crown Act has had on allowing black people to come out of the shadows and at least explore. Not everybody has to go with an Afro, you know, everybody don't have to get sister locks. But what has legislation like the Crown Act being passed in states across the country, not at the federal level yet, thank you, Rand Paul, but what has that signified for you as a member of this industry and how significant is that for those of us who want to be to, to have the freedom to wear our hair the way it was genetically programmed to grow out of our head. Yes, well, it is our God-given right to wear our hair in its natural state, in its crown and glory. And believe it or not, some people today still don't know about the Crown Act and what it entails and discrimination of wearing your hair in the workplace and in schools so that there is no discrimination against you coming into your true self into your authentic self and wearing your hair as you would like it to be and love it when you wake up every day in the morning. It was unfortunately necessary for this act and this law to be and to continue across the country because in other states, children are still, boys and girls are still having to cut off their locks and take out their beads out of their braids to do gymnastics and run track and be on a, a, a wrestling team. That's still happening today. So the act is very important. The law is very important. And, and we must continue to advocate for it in every state. There's 21 states now. That is awesome. Wow. But the work continues. The work continues because with the, the advocate See of the movement, then you have consumers wearing their hair in their glory. Who is going to style these people, these consumers, these clients? 
the education is here, but it's not on the state level. So we've been advocating for many years, for many years, uh, Diane and I, for over 35 years with our, our textbooks, with the Milady textbooks, and so on and so forth, and, and working with legislators to have a texture inclusion education curriculum testing. There's going to be a victory soon coming with texture inclusion that we had a big part in um, pushing and advocating for for several years now, and just really creating a more elevation of the art and science of natural hair, mastering texture, natural hair styling, cutting of all textures. It's very important to understand how to identify texture. What is texture really? It's not just a new buzzword. It's been around in our community for centuries, since Egyptian times, right? We've been wearing wigs and braids and cutting and styling and architecture for centuries. So to bring texture into the light now, into mainstream America is wonderful. But if we're just gonna cut texture without knowing how to identify texture and how to cut it, this is where texture education legislation has to be presented so that curriculums and state boards must be mandated in the classroom so cosmetology schools are now equipped to teach the professionals who are then keeping the safety and out of harm's way because stylists can easily now say oh i have to know texture i'm just going to go in and cut somebody's hair that's not what we want we want it managed in the cosmetology schools on the state level or certification across the country. It's already across the world. So that's what we're working for now. So the man is going to cut us off because they, they have to pay bills in just a minute. So, so I'm, I'm grateful that that we're beginning this conversation here. We're, we're going to have to leave it here just for now. But I, you ladies are coming back. This is a, an ongoing conversation. The politics of the black aesthetic is so important. Erin, we literally have 20 seconds, but can you please give us contact information for yeah. the natural and hairstylist coalition. I know there are people who are going to want to follow up. We have, I'm hearing, we literally have 30 seconds in my ear. Erin, okay. how can people contact the coalition? So they can follow us on Instagram at the underscore NHBC and our website just went live. It's www.nhbcoalition.org. So we look forward to, you know, getting new followers and new people to help join the, the movement, join the movement um, and take our survey. We have survey for the community and care professionals. Erin, Diane, and Diane, I'm so grateful for you and really grateful for the work that you do because again, all of us benefit from having experts like yourselves. I'm looking forward to you joining us again because this is a conversation. We've literally scratched the beginning of the surface. Lots more that we have to delve into and I'm looking forward to having you back for the next segment of Black Looks. We appreciate you ladies. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you.